Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recorded live. All right. Welcome to the, to the American Liberties Wednesday night call. It is December 13th. And uh, just a few, couple more weeks to Christmas. And uh, in Florida here, it's beginning to feel like Christmas, man. It's getting a little cold, like down in the 50 degrees. I know that's nothing where, in comparison to you people who live in Minnesota and, and windy Chicago and other places, but cold to me. Anyhow, um the title to our show, Off to the Supreme Court, with a question mark. And the question mark is, you know, I guess I was so pointed or so so narrow-minded at looking at going to the Supreme Court, gee, I didn't think how I was going to pay for it. Well, you know, it did come up in my mind how I was going to pay for it in one way because I figured the the crowdfunding thing that I was in would get up and running. But like usually, things will have hiccups and bumps in the road. And now it's no longer crowdfunding, but it's, it's philanthropy. And, um, and I, I did happen to talk to an attorney today about it, and he's interested uh, in, in the concept. So that's good, and uh, and for those, and I'm going to talk about a little. We're going to talk a little bit about that after the call uh, on the subject about going to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, you know, it it it's going to take a, a good portion of, and every bit of probably ten thousand dollars after it's all said and done if not more. And so um, I was hoping by now um, I'd be in a position where that wouldn't even be an issue. And it won't be. I feel it won't be. But again, we'll talk about that later. But the thing that I'm excited about, and I know Dave will probably uh, go in, in more detail on it, but the thing that I like most about it, and I think that we have a great chance, is we're not arguing the typical taxpayers' arguments, as credible as those arguments are. But we do know that the IRS, the courts, are just not going to hear it. Even Dave's arguments, they'll do everything they can to squirt to skirt away from having to answer and deal and have a confrontational come-to-Jesus meaning on the interpretation and the statutory construction of the law. 
and and with today's conversation that we had it's quite evident where you know yeah are we talking about taxes absolutely but we're more focused on the statutory construction we're talking about the interpretation of statutes and not so much about well if he's a taxpayer or not all right we're talking about let's you know we're talking about a miscarriage of justice if you want to take somebody's property whether it be his labor his life his possessions whatever the property it is it is a miscarriage of justice when one relies on court decisions and in interpreting the statutes and opposed to taking this property. So this is where we're going with it. And Dave is on the phone. And David, I'd like to have you um, take it away, please. David. Hello. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, there you are. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Good to be here on the American Liberties Call. My name is David Merlin. Nothing you'll hear me say. Nothing you'll hear me say is intended as legal advice. Anything that sounds like that to you, just consider something somebody else might do on a planet far, far away where law matters. Doesn't matter here. I prove it on a daily basis. Believe it. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting point of this process. <clears throat> where the questions shift from, uh, from hey, you deprive me of the provisions of Section 83 to, hey, this situation created by the courts where they won't even talk about the, uh, the governing provisions at any level. And here we are in the Supreme Court. That kind of violates due process, doesn't it? Because I feel the Supreme Court, first off, uh, Chris and Karen, respectively the 11th and 9th Circuit, uh, they said, well, because you didn't raise these issues in tax court and you haven't proven that the miscarriage of justice, we aren't going to hear them. And um, another one was, uh, well, at the administrative level, there was an appeals hearing, and we find the appeals office did not abuse their discretion. Stop right there. To determine whether or not a public servant has abused their discretion. You have to examine all of the law that governs their conduct. That's the end of that story. Well, how did Section 83 operate in your conclusion that they did not abuse their discretion? See how they just jumped over all of the law to say, oh, well, they didn't abuse their discretion. Prove it. Well, good luck in the Supreme Court. That's how it's played at the appellate level. And so the Supreme Court is going to get several questions. I want to, you know, I don't want to just give them one question. And what I think they're going to do is look at the way the law has been picked apart and put back together to make sense of how to calculate your cost in a way they never dreamt existed. And so this is a, a case of first impression. And all those cases about the term any, 
and the fact the government has not gone on record with anything at all, despite all of this uh, bickering you've heard about in the last two years' conference calls since the first case was filed in South Dakota. It's still about the same provisions. They refuse. And uh, so it's about the process. Once you reach the Supreme Court, it's not about the argument. And they said, well, since you didn't raise them in tax court and uh, since you went to appeals and didn't raise these in the administrative level, this statute says we can't hear your case. So that hot mess is in our way of getting to the Supreme Court to actually decide the interpretation of Section 83. But the way the litigants are handled is a very attractive um, mess. If you're going to take something to the Supreme Court, take a mess. The government's made a mess of this. Where's Joe Lunchbucket's rights and all this? Great question, because we have this void for vagueness doctrine. You can't be forced to speculate as to the meaning of penal statutes. Well, if I don't pay and I don't think I owe, they're going to ignore the fact I don't think I owe, and they're going to indict me. I need clear explanations. They promised to me, and I can't have them. They don't train their employees on this statute. The DOJ won't talk about this statute. The appellate courts, nobody. And here are the docket numbers that prove they'll penalize you for asking. <clears throat> and so the question becomes very broad. Uh, this is the first question uh, that I wrote. Um, it's about due process. Through all this, did I have access to the law? Does it violate due process or constitute a miscarriage of justice, or does it violate Section 7803A, the requirement that one exhaust judicial remedy to the highest court in the land over a tax assessment without any discussion whatsoever as to the proper interpretation of provisions held by appellate courts, the IRS, and by tax court to be governing, that they explain how, they determine what is to be included in gross income, and are applicable to any and all compensation for services? Yeah, I think that kind of violates due process. We're in the Supreme Court, and the record is still barren of discussion of key provisions. Twenty-three years after they received the first challenges in tax court, there are still no clear explanations or briefings of key provisions. And we're in the highest court of the land. That's a real good question. Does it constitute a miscarriage of justice? Does it violate due process? Is it an unfair tax system when we can go all the way to the Supreme Court and still not have access to regulations everybody says governs my paycheck? That's a great question. <clears throat> Second part of the question, is an assessment valid when such provisions are off limits under threat of enormous monetary sanctions for frivolity? Because they'll penalize you in tax court and they can't they won't give you access to these provisions in their decision that proves you wrong. Uh then quote of 1937 case, taxpayers are entitled to know the basis of law and fact on which the commissioner sought to sustain the deficiency. Is this true today? And if so, has the taxman failed to put his finger on the law? And that's out of a United Dominion Industries or Incorporated 2001 Supreme Court 
a case I got out of an email from Lowell Beecraft to his list. And uh, the Supreme Court in 2001, quoting a state Supreme Court case that said, when the taxman seeks to put his finger on the taxpayer, he must also put his finger on the law allowing it or permitting it. So in all of this, they'll penalize you for asking, and they will not get to the key provisions. Have they failed to put their finger on the law for the purposes of whether or not these are valid assessments? At no level will they disclose the law to you. How can an assessment be valid when you know it has to be imposed by clear language, they can't ask for more than the law permits, or they'll be fired, they could be convicted for extortion, <clears throat> conspiracy against rights if a bunch of them thought they ought to steal your money. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of accountability that is uh, shelved when they keep the law a secret. They don't have to answer to the law. Point of order. That violates due process. So that's the first big bad question. And what might we get out of it? I think the Supreme Court will take that and remand it to the appellate court for a decision. And I'm going to give you a new word, a new term. Um, they will not give you this in tax court or on the appellate level. And I think the Supreme Court, if they take this case, uh, Karen or Chris, they will take it for the purposes of remanding to the appellate court for a decision on the new issues raised on appeal, which is Section 83, and I'm only named in a regulation. Does Section 1, uh, um, I'm sorry, does Regulation 1.1-1 deviate from Section 1? Section 1 does not mention citizenship, and the regulation does. If I were in the Supreme Court and knew that this was just going to come up in other cases that are already underway, other property knows who I'm talking about, then uh, that's an incentive to hear it now. And they could simply say, um, yes, tax court's history of penalties is a miscarriage of justice or a fundamental error. Uh, I have cases where, and I'm going to read one right to you here. This is this is great. Um, <clears throat> It's from 1988, a U.S. tax court case. And when you hear what it has to say, you're going to say, we've been listening for a long time today, and we know already you can't have that. Well, you could in 1988, and I want to know where the hell that is right now, because you can't have it. Does that violate due process? If the Supreme Court takes the case, because it's a hot mess, there's a lot of things in it that need to be squared away. What I would do if I were on the Supreme Court, I would say tax court's history of penalizing people for statutory arguments is a fundamental error and miscarriage of justice. And petitioners were allowed or they should have been indulged on the appellate level as to their statutory challenges. And so we remand it to the appellate court for a decision on the statutory challenges or on all the challenges made just to get the seventh or the ninth circuit and 11th circuit's opinion on those issues to wash them out further 
before they even make it to the Supreme Court again. That's what I would do if I were the Supreme Court, is simplify it that way and uh, uh, put it back in the appellate level for a decision. <laughs> and uh, the uh, uh, it, listen, to, you can hear how far from the statutory issue we really are. But later on in the memorandum, I do compress the Section 83 briefing into just two or three pages to show them that when, and I'm getting to the tax court case from 88 right after this, when you hit that button, that's when the penalties come out. When the language of the provisions they won't talk about and all of the case law that says any is all-inclusive, when you put those two things together with the facts Section 83 governs, that's when all bets are off and you can't have this out of tax court. This is a case about Section 83. If it was before June of 88, it was before I had ever read a statute. Because in June of 88, I started studying tax law. And Pagel Incorporated versus Commissioner 91 TC 200, tax court docket number 34122-85. The term you're going to hear is exegesis. We shall begin our analysis with an exegesis of the general provisions of Section 83. We then shall examine those provisions in conjunction with the facts of the instant case so that we may decide whether respondent adequately notified the petitioner of the issue of the applicability of Section 83 or anything else. doesn't matter if the respondent adequately notified petitioner of blah, blah, blah. So what are we going to do first? We're going to perform an exegesis of the general provisions of Section 83, and we'll examine those provisions in conjunction with the facts. Hey, you deprived me of Section 83. It governs uh, my paycheck. Uh, we need a review of these provisions. You know what an exegesis is? Here's how I know that's how to pronounce it. Hang on, let me turn on the volume. Come on, you crouton. I'm in a battle with Bill Gilchrist. That is a that was the tone that comes I put in exegesis in Google and it comes up with uh, the definition of the term and a little speaker you can click on where you can even learn how to pronounce it. E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Exegesis. Critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. Okay, so we're going to look at section 83. We're going to perform an exegesis on it. We're going to carefully go through its provisions and interpret it, is what that meant. We shall then examine those provisions in conjunction with the facts. You can't have that today, can you? Since 1988, no way. The next, the rest of the paragraph here, 
Section 83A generally provides that where property is transferred in connection with the performance of past, present, or future services, the excess of the fair market value of the property, that would be the compensation, over the amount paid for the property, that would be the labor, is includable as compensation in the gross income of the taxpayer who performed the services. Right. They go on. Section 83 does not apply only to employees of the transferor. That means the person that paid the wages, the compensation, um, transferor of the property. Rather, it is applicable to any person other than the one for whom the services were performed, including independent contractors of the transferor or the person that paid for the services. And then they cite... Cone versus Commissioner, 1979, which says Section 83 applies to all property transferred in connection with the performance of services. So, um, <clears throat> in one paragraph, we hear what you can no longer have, an exegesis and a comparison of law to fact, <laughs> an application of law to fact, excuse me. You can't have it today. We're in the Supreme Court over it. And so now uh, this is the question I'd like to pose in relation to Section 83, but as a due process issue, kind of baiting the Supreme Court to hear the issue. But I'm going to ask, really, when it's this elementary and, um, and essential to the calculation of cost and therefore gross income, it violates due process to not give us clear explanations of it. So I'm going into due process angle, but in a way that might invite them in to interpret this argument. Here's how it's uh, phrased. This is precisely what the petitioner contends as it relates to the operation of 83A, that only the excess over the amount paid is rightfully, duly included in gross income. To do otherwise is a clear violation of Tax Code Section 7214, which prohibits demanding more or other sum, uh, sums than are imposed by law, to say nothing of 18 U.S.C. 872, extortion. And I could go on, racketeering, conspiracy against rights. If we can't get disclosure of how this law operates, they don't have to answer to any of those laws if they're stealing. The question goes on. The respondent wins in this court repeatedly when arguing that the terms any or any property are all inclusive of that for which the law, statute, makes no exception, that an exception cannot be arbitrary, and appellate courts throughout America have subscribed in mass to that canon of statutory interpretation. Does this canon regarding those two terms also apply to the provisions of 26 U.S.C. and its implementing regulations? How have controlling provisions how have controlling provisions that use those terms operated when the amounts respondent now seeks have been assessed as income taxes or penalties? That's a great question. I'm not asking them, have they deprived me of Section 83? I'm asking them, have they deprived me of Section 83? By asking, how have controlling provisions operated? It's the same question. But I'm asking them because I don't know anything. I'm a pro se litigant. Help me with tax law, please. They're bad to me and mean to me. Help me. 
but it's the same question. And then I compress the Section 83 argument and and show that you'll be penalized in tax court. It's it's one thing to say, okay, on the Ninth and Eleventh Circuit, they said, well, you didn't raise these in tax court, and so we're not going to hear them. And on the Eleventh Circuit, in Chris's case, the court actually said, well, you should have raised them in tax court and incurred the penalties, and we'd have straightened it out on appeal. What brand of horse feathers is that? Go ahead and break the law in tax court, get penalized, and then we'll clear it up when you get here. The Ninth Circuit, in two cases I had in the 90s, added $2,000 penalty for a frivolous appeal in two different cases. So don't hand it to me. But anyway, we have the Ninth and Eleventh Circuit saying since you didn't raise it in tax court and since you haven't proven a miscarriage of justice, we're not going to hear it. Well, in 1995, in the case of McCall versus Commissioner, my client, I got eight new issues admitted on appeal by pleading that those tax court penalties, those exact docket numbers cited in uh, Chris's case and Karen's case, based on those, the Fourth Circuit thought it was a miscarriage of justice, and they allowed nine new issues on appeal. So we have the circuits disagree. Two circuits say it's not a miscarriage of justice, and another one says it is. That's a great way to get into the Supreme Court. <laughs> and so um, there, there's highlights in this that don't point toward the argument, even though they're going to see the argument briefed here. I'm not aiming for relief based on the argument, unless, of course, they want to take it up. And if they do, they could order the Solicitor General to reply to the petition. And then it's game on. Uh, basically, uh, reply to the petition and include reflection on why the term any, as used in these uh, key provisions, should not be construed as all-inclusive. That's a real good one. Respond with uh, reflection as to why 1.1-1 should not be viewed as a regulation that deviates from statute. <laughs> I'm hitting home runs with, and and when we spoke with Beecraft about this this morning, with every one of these comments, Beecraft can hear I'm dropping entire law libraries. These topics are enormous. They're the unavoidable barge coming down the river in a flood, you know, where the, the water's risen so high it's only a, a foot or two below the bridge, and here comes a big old house. <laughs> it's going to be smashed again. It's unavoidable. The arguments have become so obvious, and the abuses I've established exist through the track record of litigation. That's a big part of this. Um, I'm going to go back to the chat for just one question here. Exegesis is a critical explanation of the text, particularly a religious text. Traditionally, the term was used primarily for work in the Bible. Uh, very good. Uh, so anyway, um, you hear how the questions aren't really about the conclusions I drew from my analysis of the tax code. It's more about the process 
because that's an easier way to get into the court. When you can show a great big mess in the lower levels. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Beecraft liked this, and uh, he's reviewing the questions. Uh, day after tomorrow, we'll probably talk to him again for a, a, an overall uh, impression of what direction should be uh, first, second, and third priorities for the Supreme Court petition, and then it's game on. We've got to work toward publishing it. It's going to take several thousand dollars. they got to look really nice. they got to be perfect bound. It's going to cost us $700 just to have the, uh, the Supreme Court petition perfectly formatted by somebody that does that work professionally. I don't want to mess with it. I want to know everything's done perfectly. And so the person that Beecraft recommends used to work for Save a Patriot. He says she's dynamite. She does for six or seven hundred dollars what the guys in DC do for four thousand. So uh, we will save money along the way. But there's a whole bunch of copies of the appendices, which are eight and a half by eleven, that have to be made and shipping, all the rest of it. So uh, it has to be done January tenth. And in the mail, January 11th, 12th, 13th, right in there, because the deadline is January 26th. So uh, um, I'm absolutely elated to have an open channel with uh, Larry B. Kraft uh, when I'm approaching the Supreme Court, and uh, he freely uh, welcome our our phone call to share with him my thoughts on the questions for the Supreme Court. And he agrees that I've done a great job of uh, <laughs> of uh, making a great big mess to lay right on him. And it's about the little guy, man. Where are the, um, let's see. Uh, let's see. There's a question I want to get to. Just a second, Maldonado. Um, uh, he welcomed our phone call. And uh, it, you know, here's there's a, there's a big takeaway from this call. But uh, first, I'll say he's very open to everything. He likes the statutory arguments I'm making. The takeaway, he had only asked me in passing at the very end of one of those radio interviews you'll hear on my YouTube channel. Um, he asked me, "Oh, and don't you have another challenge that?" Uh, Section 1 doesn't mention the U.S. citizen and the regulation does. And I say, yeah, this and that. And I outline it real quick. <clears throat> Today on our phone call, he looks at these questions, and the first one he comments about is the 1.1-1 argument. He's hooked on that, too. He already likes Section 83, and he saw that one, and, uh, and it's got his interest now. Um, let's see. Uh, Serpico pledges $100. Thank you. Everybody knows how to reach Chris. Put your e email address in the uh, chat, Chris. Uh, where can I find, uh, this is Maldonado, where can I find an affidavit for debt validation to the IRS that I can tailor to my needs from your courses? Do you have a Christmas discount? I don't have an affidavit like that. Um, it's administrative work I never did. That's a validation of the debt. That's either UCC or Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Uh, there are a million people doing that, though. Just go to the web and do a few searches. You'll come up with people that have exactly that affidavit. That's a popular uh, method of 
uh, collateral attack, and there will be plenty of people on that subject. <clears throat> uh, the address, American Liberties, plural, AmericanLiberties.LLC at gmail.com, AmericanLiberties.LLC at gmail.com. Uh, you, you can donate money to us, or you can buy the flash drives on wevgov.com. Go there to the products page, get the flash drives. It's almost as good as donations. So uh, buy flash drives, give them away if you already got the flash drives. That's the quickest, best way uh, to put money in our hands for the uh, for the operation. Um, Pegel, Mr. Uh, Arbogs57. Pronunciation of the case is Pagel, as in Bagel, P-A-G-E-L. And let me give you a site on that. Pagel versus Commissioner, 1988. And here that comes. Pagel Incorporated. It's uh, also the, in the Section 83 book, too, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's a more it's a recent discovery. I might have had the that in the uh, Section 83 book. Chris might instead be thinking of the Melton decision. I get him confused often. Oh. So anyway, um, you'll see that quote right there about Section 83, and they cite Cohn versus Commissioner, a case I've been citing since '92. <clears throat> now, um, so the Supreme Court. Does it violate due process? We're in the highest court in the land, and we still can't have discussion about governing provisions. That case is that question is enormous. Northeast California has a question. Is that Tomary? Uh, I believe so. Let me see. Okay, you're open, Northeast Cali. Yes. Hi. This is Darling. How are you? Good. Hey. All right. Good to hear from you. Um, I have a uh, uh, a question on 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 um, uh, one of the. Well, actually, you, you brought it up today. So, um, they're blocking you from a collateral attack, right? So, what what do you do? I, what I'm we do my is we okay. we we attack the process as one that unduly stands in our way, and. Uh, that's why the question has moved from Section 83 to we're in the highest court in the land and I can't get review of the uh, of the subject provisions that govern how to whether or not the government has a case. It controls Correct. everything that you say to me when you say gross income, and yet we can't have review of it. Suddenly it's not about your stealing. It's about why can't I have access to the law, hoping that the Supreme Court We'll either take it on and say, okay, we'll decide it, or remand it to the lower court and say tax court's uh, behavior is a miscarriage of justice. Decide the issues. So, okay, so I don't know which way they go. I just have to make as big of a mess under accepted doctrines of the Supreme Courts so that I know that the question I've brought shows them that what we're contesting opposes those doctrines that a bunch of Supreme Court cases have been set aside so they can keep the law a secret. It leads to tax prosecution for criminal tax evasion. I can't be forced to speculate as to the meaning of statutes, and no one will talk about the law. 
on the Sixth Circuit in Kentucky, U.S. District Court, they argued you're not entitled to clear explanation of the laws. Well, then open the damn jail doors. It's one or the other. Or we got to overturn probably 50 Supreme Court cases that I cite in my briefing on void for vagueness. Okay, so, so, so that, that hang on. That's what I've tried okay. to do to the Supreme Court is to give them such a smelly mess, they feel compelled to step in and crack the whip in a, at least a couple ways. Go ahead. So are you filing a new suit um, with a different cause of action? No. In, in the same court? Or? Hang on, hang on. Chris came out of tax court into the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Karen came out of U.S. Tax Court into the 9th Circuit Court of Appeals. And out of those two decisions, they go to the Supreme Court. So it's not it's an appeal of what's happened thus far. It's not a new action. Okay. So it's not okay. Okay. <clears throat> For everybody on the call, let me tell you that we vgov.com as in we versus government, we vgov.com, get into the website left-hand side menu column at the top. There's a link that says YouTube 2. Click on that. It'll take you to my YouTube channel. For everybody that's in the chat on the computer, you already got that link just a couple seconds ago. Oh, I got 30 free tutorials there. Well, one's a disclaimer. There's a couple uh, kind of a joke, but the rest of it is really hardcore lessons. And uh, today, Mr. Beecraft expressed uh, piqued interest the moment I mentioned Serpico, who's one of our callers. He's on the computer. You see him in the chat. He's a policeman, and he's been discussing helping to the degree he can help, uh, discussing my courses and uh, approaches, tactics, whatever, with the lady that we just spoke with in California. And uh, she has go to my YouTube channel and listen to the, uh, the YouTube video called um, Drive-By Litigation. Club criminals in office like baby seals, lady. Listen to the video at about 27 minutes in. It's a it's a talk show recording from here on Chris's channel, and she joins the call about halfway through and tells of what the state was doing to her three years ago and how much she's been able to learn and how she's actually on the offense. It's a it's a 180 degree paradigm shift from the clinical depression that goes along with having your servants humiliate you to actually having something in your hands that makes them go quiet it's her okay and in this testimonial she laughs at what she's able to do to them instead of crying about what they do to her she's made the shift the light is on she has an aptitude also that not a lot of people have, listen to the testimonial. It's a, it's very uplifting just to hear somebody with that kind of relief out of a terrible situation, but to also know, hey, there are courses where I could actually go on the offense when I encounter government BS. That's what I teach. If you're not making the other side uncomfortable, you don't have my courses, <laughs> plain and simply. Uh, I preach discomfort and uh, get my courses. So here we are going to the Supreme Court. There's a whole lot of 
perfect binding. That's the like you buy a romance novel off the shelf paperback. That's perfect binding. And uh, there's a whole bunch of appendices probably in the neighborhood of three or four hundred pages of appendices times. I don't know. Do you have to submit 24 copies or something like that of 10 appendices? There's really the costs are going to be enormous. So whatever you can do uh, to contribute to our efforts, uh, of course, it's very much appreciated. And uh, you got a front row seat. All you have to do is show up here to these calls, and uh, you're listening to somebody that's taken statutory issues the government's run from since 1993 all the way to the Supreme Court twice. If they don't hear these cases, I got another case about to go into the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals that will go to the Supreme Court that doesn't have these defects. He did raise the issues in tax court only as reserved issues. Because as he told tax court, I'm not stupid. I'll reserve these issues for appeal. Here's what I'm going to argue on appeal, but I'm not raising them for this court. So he did reserve them for appeal, unlike Chris and Karen. And the Supreme Court, in Chris and Karen's cases, they're going to be told about this. It's coming up on the Seventh Circuit. You may as well hear it now. See what I'm doing? I'm trying to give them great reason. Let's just get it over with. Thank you. And take these these two cases on, and they'll put a stay on the proceedings in the Seventh Circuit, and we'll have it out in the Supreme Court, whatever. But uh, that's the point to which all this has been driven, and they got every great reason to hear it now, because if they don't hear it now, they'll have to hear it later, because the mess is not going away. It's, almost, it's 25 years old. <laughs> and... Uh, it's over. It's about time. Uh, there's There has to be a bunch of judges that never say so, but they've wanted a competent void for vagueness challenge made uh, against the uh, tax code for generations. I bet you they've always hated it because you can drag them into corners of it that are just, they got to be just drudgery. And then you come up with great arguments. It's even worse. How do we protect the government? How big of an idiot do I have to look like to get the IRS out of this one? And that's the problem you always want to put through their head. Because if you're talking to a tax court judge, well, maybe he wants to move up to federal district court. You're talking to a district court judge, maybe he wants to become a appellate court judge. Push them to where they have to keep you from your rights and file criminal complaints against them. There goes that promotion. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> anyway, um, the Pagel decision, is it unpublished? Uh, I don't think it is unpublished. I think it is, uh, it's, uh, you found it. Okay. So, um, anyway, the, uh, questions are interesting and it's about the big mess. It's not about whether or not the government's stealing. But I will tell you, uh, here comes a case. I'm going to go to scholar.google, and I'm going to look up Sigmund Coal Company. Uh, very lofty uh, topic, Barnhart versus Sigmund Coal Company. It's about, hey, uh, this coal company went bankrupt, but its uh, its assets were purchased by this other company, 
did the new company acquire as existing debts the insurance company or the insurance benefits for the retired coal miners in that company that had pensions or something like that? Or is that part of the bankruptcy and are the pension holders out of luck or something very similar to that frame? But what the Supreme Court says about statutory interpretation in that case is the focus. And yes, Talkshu gives me the whole thing and pasted the whole thing. Excellent. That's the whole link to Sigmund Coal Company uh, versus uh, Barnhart versus Sigmund Coal Company. Barnhart was the secretary of social and health services or uh, let's see. Uh, Commissioner of Social Security. And the Supreme Court says, um, we just look at the language of the statute, and if that's clear, our job is over. Well, how come we can't have that with Section 83? That's a good question. So I'm I'm going to, I have cited this case in uh, the petition I'm writing. And let's see. As in all statutory construction cases, see if this tell is this familiar? Does this sound like Pagel that said, "Well, we gotta we gotta do an exegesis of the provisions and compare them to fact." Here's what the Supreme Court says in Sigmund Coal Company: because of this statutory challenge, uh, one party says, "Yeah, the language of the statute means you do have to pay for their insurance premiums," and uh, the other interpretation is, "No, we don't." And so the Supreme Court steps in the middle. As in, the, as in all statutory construction cases, we begin with the language of the statute. The first step is to determine whether the language at issue has a plain and unambiguous meaning with regard to the particular dispute in the case. See Robinson versus Shell Oil, Supreme Court 97, citing U.S. versus Ron Pair Enterprises, Supreme Court 89. The inquiry ceases quote, if the statutory language is unambiguous and the statutory scheme is coherent and consistent, end quote. What they just told you was their job. We have two parties that have differing interpretations of the same statute. What do we do? What do we do? Same thing tax court said it had to do. We need to perform an exegesis. Get me rags and hot water right away. <laughs> Or whatever. I'd never seen that term before. Anyway, um, same thing in the Supreme Court, just like tax court said. It's what courts are supposed to do. I've been deprived of Section 83. Well, <laughs> penalties. And you can't have your exegesis. <laughs> Give me my exegesis. It's better than Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> So we have a hot mess based on really simple concepts in the court system. I think even if the Supreme Court doesn't decide the issues, I think they'll take the case long enough to say tax court was not out of line when they penalized you for asking about the law. If they wanted to screw you, they can say that. They're not above it. After what they just did to Alonis, Oh, man, this last point I want to tell you, and this, this shows you that the Supreme Court can really be an enemy. Um, Alonis, 
Um, let's see, 2015, June 1st, Supreme Court decision. Alonis had posted a bunch of uh, ballistically and overtly violent rhetoric about his ex-wife on his Facebook page. Hey, the best place to launch a mortar at her house is from the cornfield beside her house because there's an access road you can get away on. Hey, I'm not worried about the state and fed, he says, because I got enough explosives to take care of them. And he says, hey, there's no uh, hell hath no fury like an angry man with a shotgun in a middle school. And they indicted him, charged him, convicted him of transmitting a threat in interstate commerce. And the jury was instructed, if a reasonable person sees what he wrote and is in fear of violence, he's guilty. But defense counsel had argued, no, he has to have criminal intent to be guilty. And they would not instruct the jury that way. And he took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, criminal intent is an essential element of the statute. You have to instruct the jury on it. His conviction cannot stand. Seven justices said that. Justice Alito wrote a separate concurring opinion saying, well, sometimes we've remanded for harmless error analysis. That means sometimes we'll put it back to the appellate court and ask them to decide if the error was harmless. And if it was harmless, then the conviction would stand, is what he meant by that. And so seven justices that said, quote, his conviction cannot stand, end quote, were ignored, and the Alito comment was taken up by the uh, 11th Circuit on remand. I think that was an 11th Circuit case. And the 11th Circuit said, oh, uh, we find the error was harmless, and the conviction stands. And so the lawyers appealed it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, we're not going to hear it. This means in any case, the judge can misinstruct the jury so that the jury doesn't really get to decide whether you're innocent or guilty under the proper standards, which means he's taking away your rights to a jury trial in any way he thinks is necessary to get your ass in prison. And then on appeal, the appellate court can merely only has to say, oh, the, the uh, error was harmless. Now, they did this maybe not for the purposes of future trials because they did come out with a lonus that said you have to give them a jury instruction, but later on basically ratified failing to give the jury instruction. But there was a lot of great work to be done vacating sentences for people that didn't receive that instruction, people that didn't receive that consideration. And that's what the Supreme Court tried to shut down with their choice to not hear it after it was taken up on Alito's comment. That's what they were trying to to preserve, is court resources. We don't need a bunch of innocent people petitioning the court to get their conviction overturned. So take that away from them. And you think that court's not your enemy? You have to, you have to really have it in line with the Supreme Court, an inescapable truth. That's why I like his statutory argument. He saw what they just did to that guy. Also, the health care decision. Um, Obergefella was the uh, gay marriage decision. I can't remember the name. 
uh, King. I can't remember the name of the healthcare decision, but it was a matter of uh, the IRS was giving subsidies to people who bought their insurance on federal exchanges or on state exchanges when the law said only people that bought their insurance on state exchanges were eligible. And the Supreme Court said, oh, Congress meant state or federal. That's adding language to a statute, and I got a million Supreme Court decisions that says they can't do that. (laughs) So you never know what's going to happen. It's just America. Justice is a crapshoot. And I didn't have to go back into antiquity to prove it. These are two decisions from the last several years where they just knocked it out of the park that you can't rely on them. So um, we're going to conclude the call and then get on to a different topic. Thanks for joining us, but stay on the call. Uh, we have an exciting announcement we want to share with you. And uh, Chris is going ahead and uh, going to go ahead and turn off the call. Go to my YouTube channel. My archive here on TalkShoe is at 59615. 59615. Tell your friends about the calls there and watch my YouTube tutorials. They're free. And uh, I'll see you on my show, 59615. No confidence. That's noon on Saturdays, Pacific time. Okay, Chris. Wake up. I'm talking. I'm muting myself out. Okay, thank you very much. And everybody, just stay on the call for a minute. And uh, But officially, this call is over, and God bless America. Thank you. Okay, now let me go ahead and end the call. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.